listening to the Citizens Church podcast. Citizens Church exists to saturate Bryan College Station, Texas with the good news and love of Jesus. To learn more about Citizens Church, visit us online at citizensbcs.com. Today's message is from Kevin Still. As Lauren uh, passes out some papers to you and as Megan helps pass out some papers to you, uh, this is something I'd like for us to read together in just a moment. Uh, I, I was going to start with just a, uh, a word of, of repentance, like public repentance uh, to you guys, because we're talking through a series on Sabbath right now, and um, we talked last week about stopping. We're talking tonight about resting. Uh, next week, uh, there'll be some notes on delight, and eventually we'll go to worship, and um, I was deeply, deeply convicted this past week of how often I verbally uh, and silently curse time and say things like, there's never enough, and I just, I hate these days because I feel so busy. And um, I was deeply convicted, and you'll see why in just a moment. I know that might seem like a strange thing to stand up and say, I want to repent of this, and yet um, I realized in my preparation for tonight that I was actually cursing something that God considers very good, and it was a gift. And anytime God has said something is good and we say that it is not, we are in opposition to him. And so um, I'm, I'm here saying uh, that I'm preaching to my own soul a little bit tonight, and I need this word on Sabbath dearly. Um, if you're in this room and you have a pulse, you need the word on Sabbath, because Rest is something that our culture and our bodies and our flesh fights against. Um, so I've, I, I generally try to observe a Sabbath beginning on Friday afternoons until sometime on Saturday, and I felt a lot of pressure on Friday to get a lot done. Uh, even Friday night, my wife was out of the house celebrating Kiva's birthday. Happy birthday, Kiva. And... Uh, So I had some time alone, and I was very tempted to work on tonight. I was very tempted to get some papers graded, and I just stopped and just said, okay, actually observing rest and Sabbath is going to be an exercise of faith, that, God, you're going to help me multiply the time tomorrow that's available and the energy tomorrow. And so Friday night, I just had some space to myself, and I just, um, I, I made food and I sat down at a table and ate it. I didn't need it standing at the counter, like hurried. And I took a long walk and didn't get in a hurry. Had an awkward encounter with a neighbor. It was fabulous. Um, I went back. I, I have a small stack of books that I read on the Sabbath that I consider are very nourishing. They're very nerdy. I won't tell you about them. Um, I read for a little bit. I put on a record during that time and it felt very restful. And I kept thinking, but I need to do this. And I kept saying, shut up. (laughs) No, you don't. (laughs) And it was hard to tell those things no. Um, And every time I was in that place of saying, be quiet, I'm going to trust the Lord with my time. I just felt this this repentance kind of like coming to the surface, like you have cursed time so much and it is a gift. I want us to read this uh, passage together to start tonight. We're going to read this, and I'll say a word of prayer, and then I'll get into the notes I actually want to make. This comes from Abraham Joshua Heschel's book, The Sabbath, which Ben has introduced as one of our resources. And this is actually in the introduction, just the prologue. I'd like for us to read through this together. Notice I made a copy of it because I'm so 
convinced there's a good word here that I wanted you to have it in your hands, not just to see it with your eyes. It says here, one of the most distinguished words in the Bible is kadash, holy. A word which more than any other is representative of the mystery and majesty of the divine. Now, what was the first holy object in the history of the world? Was it a mountain? Was it an altar? It is indeed a unique occasion at which the distinguished word kadash is used for the first time. In the book of Genesis at the end of the story of creation, how extremely significant is, is that fact that it is applied to time? And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. There is not reference in the record of creation to any object in space that would be endowed with the quality of holiness. This is a radical departure from accustomed religious thinking. The mythical mind would expect that after heaven and earth have been established, God would create a holy place, a holy mountain or a holy spring, whereupon a sanctuary is to be established. Yet it seems as if to the Bible, it is holiness in time, the Sabbath, which comes first. When history began, there was only one holiness in the world, Holiness in time. When at Sinai, the word of God was about to be voiced, a call for holiness in man was proclaimed. Thou shalt be unto me, sorry for the typo, a holy people. It was only after the people had succumbed to the temptation of worshiping a thing, a golden calf, that the erection of a tabernacle of holiness in space was commanded. The sanctity of time came first. The sanctity of man came second, and the sanctity of space last. The big takeaway here is this. If God has said a thing is holy, we find a way to wrap our lives around it. We do not try to get it to fit around our lives. Do you see what I'm saying? And there is a big difference, okay? And we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. Um, as we press forward and talk about Sabbath as a form of rest. Uh, but first, I just want to say uh, this quick word of prayer. Thank you, God, that you are holy, and we ascribe you as holy. We declare you as holy, and we know that we are not yet holy, and you love us anyway. And you've created space in your presence for us anyway. How good you are. So, thank you and amen. Okay, um, as we proceed forward, I'd like to take a look at a prayer that comes to us from the Book of Common Prayer. It is actually a prayer for the Sabbath day. Every day of the week is given a separate prayer in the daily office in the Book of Common Prayer that Anglicans pray, uh, and they're all thematic for each day of the week. And I'd like us to take a look at this one. This is for Saturday. Um, It's actually called A Collect for Sabbath Rest. Um, it says, Almighty God, who after the creation of the world rested from all your works and sanctified a day of rest for all your creatures, grant that we, putting away all earthly anxieties, may be duly prepared for the service of your sanctuary, and that our rest here upon earth may be a preparation for the eternal rest promised to your people in heaven through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
And that's a prayer that if you read through the Book of Common Prayer on a regular basis, you'll come to that every single Saturday. And it's a beautiful prayer. Notice it is a prayer for rest that mentions rest four times. But there's actually a phrase in that prayer I'd like us to focus on tonight and put our energies. Um, and it is, this, it is this phrase right here after Grant that we, it says, putting away all earthly anxieties. And tonight we're talking about rest. And if there is anything that's kind of opposing to rest, it would be the idea of anxiety, right? Anxiety is just this kind of like quiver to jitteriness that's in your, in your chest. It's this revving up of something that doesn't allow you to sit still, that doesn't allow you to breathe properly. Um, and I'd like to talk about these earthly anxieties. Can we go back one? And I'd like to look at, um, I'd like to look at three different forms of anxiety, because it is a sermon and a Christian sermon, so obviously three is a magic number. Um, but before we get to that, I want us to consider this phrase, putting away all earthly anxieties. And I want us to see that that verb right there, putting away, is actually an active verb. Um, it, is, it indicates that some distance has been made, that, um, that there's some kind of choice uh, to dispossess of something. There is an act of resistance in putting something away. Now, you can ignore something passively, and you can neglect something passively, but you cannot put something away passively. You have to actively put something away. And we're going to look at rest as a way of putting away those earthly anxieties. So as we look at three different forms of anxiety, I'd like to start with one of the first forms, and that is this idea of inherited worry. One way we come by our anxiety is honestly, by inheriting our anxieties from our parents or our ancestors, perhaps even from our culture. Um, I've made a joke often through the years that I have my father's gut and my mother's mind. I've just got worry all in my DNA, right? We inherit bits of our families uh, that we may never even fully comprehend or actually have vocabulary for. There is a, uh, a beautiful book written by a, a uh, counselor named Galit Atlas. I was introduced to this book by uh, my wonderful friend Jeremy Dew. His sister's here. Misha's here. Um, my friend Jeremy introduced this book to me called Emotional Inheritance, which is a fabulous book. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough, particularly if you're interested in the ideas of what we, we receive from our ancestors and from our parents. But um, Dr. Atlas has actually discovered through her work with trauma that there is a, there is a, a, a possibility that we gain anxiety and trauma from past generations, perhaps that we've never even met. Um, there is a quote that I have from her right here where she says, the secrets of the mind include not only our own life experiences, but also those that we unknowingly carry with us, the memories, feelings, and traumas that we inherit from previous generations. Atlas has learned that people can embody the trauma of imprisonment, of disease, of assault, generations removed from the original inmate, patient, or victim. Trauma even manifests between generations who've never personally met. We have found that there are people who suddenly have something kind of, uh, some uh, irrational fear, some irrational um, worry in their gut about a particular problem that through uh, searching their past history, they have found out a grandparent, a great-grandparent experienced something that it has stayed on through the generations. It's a very powerful idea of what can come 
through our DNA. Imagine, too, that our shared history uh, can come to us, um, our inherited history can come to us through our culture. We live in a nation uh, that's very individualistic, but we live in a nation of immigrants who have arrived to this continent as refugees, um, as dreamers at times, but also many who were forced against their will. And imagine just kind of what resides dormant in people uh, as people groups that needs to be healed and needs to be redeemed. Now, what does this have to do with Sabbath? Well, Sabbath actually speaks to our ancestry by reminding us that before we were ever Americans or Texans or sons or daughters or Christians, we belong to God. That we are made in God's image and we're breathed into life by his singing spirit, right? And that's what actually Sabbath can take us back to. So one of the ways that Sabbath can be a, uh, a, a, an act of resistance, a putting away of anxiety is by saying, um, if we can move forward, um, just no to some of this inheritance that's in us that is worry. Uh, Psalm 95 tells us, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord God, our maker. Notice he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. There are things in us that need to be healed we don't even comprehend. And yet that one day a week, that Sabbath rest is an opportunity to go, God, thank you that underneath all of that, I actually belong to you and my origin is in you. And it is from you that I began and it is to you that I will return and I will trust that you will heal the things I can't even see. Don't ask me how that works, but I promise you it does because I've experienced it and you have experienced it. Some of you have experienced it. If you need to experience it, let's pray. Let's talk maybe after service. But our Sabbath rest can be a resistance against all that plagues us as humans that share names and DNA and even postal codes, right? The second form of anxiety that I want us to look at first was this inherited worry, and the second is the idea of just too much noise. Too much noise obviously can cause anxiety. Our anxiety is connected to too much noise, much of it being quite self-inflicted by our ever-present devices, our always in our ears, earbuds, the unending news of the day. Like Too much noise does not allow for the quiet that is rest. And as I said, often the noise that we encounter is self-inflicted. In many moments that we could escape the cacophony of constant noise, we often settle for entertainment instead of rest, a Netflix binge or maybe just a phone scroll, and we allow that to suffice as our rest. This means that our opportunity to access much-needed quiet is commandeered by more noise. Tish Harrison Warren, who is uh, an Anglican priest and a fabulous writer, and if you haven't read anything by her, hop to it very quickly. Um, she's written some great books, but I love that now she actually has a column in the New York Times. We need her voice in the New York Times. We need her voice in just the media in general. She wrote this beautiful essay recently about that very idea of allowing your quiet spaces to be stolen by more noise. Her, her article is titled, How I Freed Up Time to Daydream, 
which is a, a kind of a terrible title until you read the article. Um, but in it, she mentions how she had to, she was a bit of a Twitter addict. And she said it was like, the reason she was a Twitter addict is anytime she had a quiet moment in the car or something, she was on Twitter. Anytime she just had a moment to herself, she was on Twitter. And it was like she couldn't get away from just the need for da 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 more, 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 right? And so she... She went. She got away from Twitter, and she makes a joke that she actually jumped over on Zillow. Um, but, but anyway, she moved away from Twitter, and she was like, I'm supposed to experience all this zen-like calm, but she didn't. She experienced instead just this kind of uh, gentle quiet in her life that met her very uh, kindly. And at the end of her essay, she talks about this, this very interesting, she gives us an interesting metaphor for how quiet can work into our life, particularly how quiet can help us in the realm of anxiety. She says at the end of her essay, my friend Tim, Timothy, is a studied musician. He is a violinist. I asked him about the function of small breaks in music, of rests. He said that music, like a living creature, needs to breathe, and these small breaks, however seemingly brief and unimportant, are what allows a piece of music to live and take flight. He told me that if you fill up every rest in a piece of music, listening to it would be exhausting and would eventually descend into an undifferentiated mass that we can't really take in, attend to, or enjoy. Rests in music, even short ones, create rhythm, variety, and narrative. They help, he said, guide and change the course of a song. But he said you have to learn to play the rests. It seems easy. It doesn't require technical skill the way that it does to play a scale or an arpeggio. But to make good music, you have to learn to honor the small breaks in it. And then she says this. She says this. She says, um, when she says, in the same way, our days, which are so full of work and thinking, of arguing and learning, of disappointments and confusion, of striving and creating, must have moments when nothing much is happening. She confesses, I filled those moments with loud, funny, angry, and interesting voices online. But leaving these small moments empty is what makes the difference between noise and music. I want to go back to this one statement, though, that her friend Tim made when she says this, because I think that this is so significant. He told me that if you filled up every rest in a piece of music, listening to it would be exhausting and would eventually descend into an undifferentiated mass that we can't really take in, attend to, or enjoy. Constant noise drowns out any voice of wisdom that speaks discernment to our hearts. Without moments of quiet, we cannot distinguish beyond the surface level. We can't distinguish between good and bad, important and unimportant, wise and simple. All unsavory moments become emergencies. All relational effort becomes drama. All internal unpleasantry becomes more reason to just snuff out the silence. And some of us are truly terrified of silence. We're terrified. We're so scared of what's going to meet us in that place if we get quiet. However, rest is a resistance against 
that fear. It is a resistance against that noise. If we could look at this, Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy, God did not give you a spirit of fear. He gave you a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. Other uh Translations may mention that he did not give you a spirit that is timid, but he may have given you a spirit of self-discipline and a, a sound mind, which, is, which means that you are given a spirit to not only discern what is good and what is wise and what is true, you are given a spirit to step into it and to assume it and to live it. But it does mean that you have to say, I will face the silence. But here's the thing. You have, a, you have a spirit of power and love. Where did that come from? Any voice that you meet in the silence that is from the Lord is there to give you dunamis power, to rise up over the troubles in your life. Any voice that comes to you from the Lord in that quiet is going to be a voice of love speaking identity to you. Does that mean there may be scary things in the quiet? yes because we still carry the flesh upon us, correct? Sabbath rest resists our fear of silence and quiet, reminding us that anything the Holy Spirit wishes to communicate in such moments is for our healing and our redemption and our prosperity, all right? What are you afraid of in the silence? And is it worse than the anxiety of constant noise that now plagues you. The third type of anxiety that I'd like to look at is very similar and is the idea of having too many options, which sounds a little strange. Anxiety can truly result from too many options. The glory of modern America is its freedom, but the curse of modern America is also its freedom. We have so many methods and avenues and choices for passing our time and pacifying our displeasure. It's too much at our disposal. Um, when I lived in Kansas City, I, I met a, a man who was from Kenya, and he moved to America, and he uh, told the story about going to like a big mega grocery store in Kansas City for the first time, and he wanted to get bread. One, two of the items he wanted to get was bread, and another item he wanted to get was cereal. He said back in Kenya, there was maybe just a couple of choices for each, but he got his shopping cart and went around and just turned around on the bread aisle, and he just said, No. And then he went over to the cereal aisle and he pulled in, no. And he didn't go out with bread or cereal that day. It was overwhelming. The psychologist Barry Schwartz um, has, has this beautiful TED talk called The Paradox of Choice. It's from his book called The Paradise of Choice. And he's actually struck with this idea that a little bit of choice is actually very good for us, but too much choice, just like that story with Julius, actually paralyzes us and causes us not to act. How many times have you flipped on Netflix and sat there and spent the entire portion of a movie you could have watched a whole movie by the time you were just scrolling through this thing, looking at stuff. You never made a choice. Why? Too many options, right? I grew up with like seven channels, and I remember when we finally went to like 22, and I was just like, just show me where the Nickelodeon is. And then it was, show me where the MTV is. And then it was my mom praying that the TV would break, right? 
But Barry Schwartz says this, as a culture, we are enamored of freedom, self-determination, and variety, and we are reluctant to give up any of our options, but clinging tenaciously to all the choices available to us contributes to bad decisions, to anxiety, stress, and dissatisfaction, even to clinical depression. The appeal of modern, techn- uh, modern digital tech, um, be it in social media or streaming services or dating apps, is that the opportunity for novelty is endless. And because experiencing new things releases dopamine that makes you feel good, we hit and we hit and we hit and we hit the slot machine wheel of more options, hoping to find the perfect meme or perfect movie or perfect mate that will satisfy. And we just won't. It's just not how it works. And I think some of you are going, I got it. I know what that's like. I have found this to be true as a teacher. My students who have a job have less anxiety in their life. Why? Because they have less choices about their time. Time becomes concrete, and it becomes something that they can see that is actually real. My students who don't have a job always have an option of what it is that they will be doing with the next hour, and they never get to the thing that they're supposed to do, and they've procrastinated till the last minute, and they're riddled with the anxiety of what do I do with myself, and what do I do with myself, and what do I do with myself? And my answer is, get a dead gum job so that your time is made concrete, and you have less choices that you have to make. Now, we have an entire book of the Bible that is about the idea of having too many options, truly, and Rest is our opportunity to say no to too many options and to turn to the wisdom that we gain from Solomon when he says in Ecclesiastes, I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this was vanity. Eugene Peterson, and I can't get through saying anything publicly without referencing Eugene Peterson, Eugene Peterson once said if he could design his own volume of a New Testament like the Gideons did to leave everywhere, he would start with the book of Ecclesiastes, go into the New Testament, and end with the Psalms. Why? Because we all have to deal with the fact that life is drastically unsatisfying, as is all of the options for how we can try to heal ourselves and redeem ourselves. Empty, empty, empty. And then we walk immediately, we can walk from there immediately into the birth of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, even all of your religious efforts are going to be empty as well. Only life in me is good. Wisdom tells us that true satisfaction in life does not come from novelty, but from intimacy. Not from searching further, but by digging in. We find joy by appreciating what we have, who we are, and learning to trust that this is enough until God can fill the void that causes us the most ache. Yes, many of us are waiting for promises and hopes to be fulfilled, but in the meantime, we can offer a sacrifice of praise for everything that he has given us, and there's rest in that. There are three rests, I mean, sorry, there are three anxieties that I wanted to look at putting away through Sabbath. And I want us to look at them together. One is the idea of inherited worry. One is the idea of just too much noise. And then the last is this idea of too many options. To review, Sabbath is a putting away of this anxiety. 
Sabbath is active resistance against these things. Sabbath rest reminds us of our origin in God, the glory of a quietly discerning voice and the soul reviving quality of thanksgiving. And we actually have a biblical principle for Sabbath as resistance. Now, the Ten Commandments are given to us twice in Scripture, once in Exodus chapter 20. When, and I believe, Ben, you talked to us from Exodus last week. Is that correct? Yes, that's what I, I believed. So in Exodus chapter 20, we have the children of Israel, and they are at the mountain, and Moses is up receiving the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, were written in stone, not in pencil. And he gets the, the, the Ten Commandments and he brings them down and he reads, we, we get the commandments there that say to remember the Sabbath because God rested at the end of creation. We have the Ten Commandments given to us again in Deuteronomy chapter five. Now this is after we get the Levitical law and this is after the children of Israel have wandered in the desert through the books of, book of Numbers and now we're in Deuteronomy where the, the, the generations later, after those 40 years, the, the, the people who were at the mountain when Moses was getting the stone tablets, their children and grandchildren are now in the promised land and they're listening to the law again. And the, and the Ten Commandments are given once more. And this is how the commandment on Sabbath is given to us. It says, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now, if you were here last week, a lot of that sounds very familiar, but there's two differences between what happened in Exodus that Ben talked about last week and what's happening in Deuteronomy that we're going to look at today. Here's the first difference. In Exodus, we're told to remember the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy, we're told to observe the Sabbath. Well, what's the difference? Those verbs in English don't sound too different. However, that verb observe comes from the Hebrew shamar, which means to guard or to protect, like you might a major holiday, right? Think about how you kind of single out Christmas or Thanksgiving Day or maybe even birthdays, and you treat those very specially, right? Certain people get to come in on those days. Certain activities happen on those days. You have traditions for those days. There are songs that you sing and foods that you eat, and there might even be particular clothes that you wear on those days to mark them as significant. Guess what? Sabbath is a weekly holiday to be guarded, protected, and observed. So the verb has changed at the very beginning of the commandment. But what also has changed is the idea at the end. In Exodus, we're reminded that God worked and then he rested. But at the end in Deuteronomy, we're told something very different. And it really relates to this idea of resistance. Notice here, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So Sabbath is actually a resistance 
to external and internal forms of slavery. You were slaves. You're not anymore. How good is that? Anyone who has struggled with anxiety, depression, knows it can be enslaving, like a bitter Pharaoh-like taskmaster that demands all our energy with no margins of rest. And so we must embrace resistance by putting away those things that attempt to pull us back into the slavery of our culture, of our current moment, right? Of our own imaginations, of our flesh. And let us also remember another um, reason that this is important is because not only did God bring his children out of slavery, but Jesus has set us free from sin, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should be no longer slaves to sin because anyone who died has been set free from sin. That's in Romans. So not only can we resist slavery uh, with our Sabbath rest, we can also accept and embrace Christ's freedom. Notice what my anxiety tries to get me to do. My anxiety in all three of these things causes me to get overly focused on myself, on my flesh, on uh, pushing away the voice of the Holy Spirit in the quiet moments, on just kind of getting lost in the sea and the cacophony of all that this world has to offer. And Jesus says, I promise you, man, I'm offering you something that is so much better than that in my peace. And yes, Jesus does offer that, but eventually you have to reach out and take that gift and embrace that. Not only did God free the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt and external work-based anxiety, but his son, and Jesus does exactly what he sees his father doing, liberated us from slavery to sin into our internal spiritual anxiety so that embracing rest is an active embrace of Jesus putting away of the shame and the addiction and the evil of this world. As I'm closing, I want us to look at one more thing that Paul had to say in Romans that I think is pertinent to what we're talking about. Um, Sabbath rest is a resistance to slavery. It's an acceptance of freedom. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I know we like the songs and we like to get our hands in the air and to contort our faces like we mean it. And we like to sing loudly. And the scriptures say, you want true worship? Lay your life down. Let the scripture permeate your entire being and live in obedience to the things that God has says are holy. That's worship. That's worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul urges us to resist the world and its anxieties, and we can do that. One way we can do that uh, is by renewing our minds with Sabbath rest. But you need to know this. When you attempt to resist the world, the world will resist you back. And when you tempt, attempt to resist your flesh, your flesh will resist you back. Your flesh and your enemy 
and the enemy of your soul do not want you to embrace holiness. I'm just gonna say that again because you think that I'm talking about Saturday. I'm talking about holiness. Your flesh, which by the way, Brother Ansem called Brother Ass, your flesh and the enemy of your soul does not want you to embrace holiness. Sabbath rest is holy. This is the only one of the 10 commandments associated with holiness. It's like when we read do not murder, we go, well, that makes sense. When we read don't go sleeping with your neighbor's wife, that makes sense. But then when we get to the one on rest, that's when God's like, this is holy to me. This is the one that's holy to me. And I wrote it in stone. And it also goes all the way back to my creation. The command to remember and observe Sabbath is the only command associated with holiness. For this reason, you can expect your flesh, your enemy, and everything around you to resist your act of resistance. The culture around you is a Sabbathless, rhythmless, soul-consuming culture. To Sabbath well requires intentionality, preparation, and a determination to embrace God's invitation to holiness. And by the way, yes, sometimes living the life of Jesus requires effort on our part. It just does. If these seem impossible, if these types of things seem impossible, I would like to remind you that Jesus actually had a habit of asking people to do what they could not do. For instance, he asked crippled people to reach out their hands and he asked lame people to walk. He asked them to do what only his voice could empower them to do. And he looks to you and says, hey, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. He says it knowing that you have his Holy Spirit in the church championing you. And when you try to embrace Sabbath and you fail, which by the way, the only way you can fail at Sabbath is just not to do it, right? That's it. If you ignore Sabbath, you failed at Sabbath. If you try to Sabbath, God is a good God. Look at him. Look, 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 look at an unholy person moving towards holiness. God is just slow clapping you, by the way. This is not, this is not an effort to feel shame. Oh, I'm terrible at it. No, 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 no. This is an opportunity to go, I really am afraid of silence. I really hate time and myself and these things. I need to embrace Sabbath knowing that if I try and it doesn't go well, his grace will abound. But to never try means to remain crippled and lame and blind and deaf, even possessed to a, to a degree by your earthly anxieties while he's holding out his hand and saying, come on. So let's let Jesus help us. Let's let Jesus guide us into a new Sabbath of resistance and acceptance of his holiness. Ben's introducing a new idea here at the end of service where we take a quiet moment and I've actually asked the musicians to just give us a quiet moment, silence for two minutes to just let anything in this word do what it needs to do. And I don't know what it is for you because I don't know who you are. I know that a few days ago, what I was terrified of in the, in the quiet and in, in, I just was afraid to take my foot off the gas, you know? I was just afraid to not try to win another minute and another hour and to get another thing done. And that, just, that ate me up and I had to lay that thing down. I don't know what's waiting for you in the quiet, but I know who's waiting for us. So 
I don't know if there's something in family or in silence or in just the cacophony of how we have filled our hours and our days that maybe we're giving our energy into too many spaces. I don't know what it is, but I'm gonna ask that we take 120 seconds, two minutes of silence to just let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Yes, I just opened a flip phone. (laughs) And I have students say, why do you have a flip phone? And I tell them, because I have one soul in so many hours. And I mean that. I'm going to give you 120 seconds to just be quiet. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. In fact, why don't we just, why don't we just pray real quick a psalm? Let me just pray a psalm over you before we get quiet. Let's just, let me just pray a psalm over you. Oh gosh, I just closed the Psalter. I want to read this psalm. This is Psalm 93. It's a good one. I'm going to read this and then I'll be quiet for a moment and give you the 120 seconds. Oh Lord, you are king and you have put on glorious apparel. Lord, you have put on your apparel and you've girded yourself with strength. You have made the round world so sure that it cannot be moved. Ever since the world began, your throne has been established. You are from everlasting. The floods have risen, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their waves, but mightier than the sound of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, is the Lord who dwells on high. He is mightier. Your testimonies, O Lord, are very sure, and holiness adorns your house forever. Lord, your testimonies are very sure. Bring us a testimony today. Thanks for joining us today for the message. We hope it was encouraging to you. To learn more about Citizens Church, including gathering times and locations, or to get financial support, please visit citizensbcs.com. And again, thanks for listening to the Citizens Church podcast. 